In times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared. Enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. I would like to announce that A Woman Built by Man, the newest horror story anthology from publisher Cemetery Gates Media, has been released in print and ebook form. This fantastic collection is co edited by friends of the show and contributors S.H. Cooper and L. Turpitt and created in conjunction with Olivia White, our content manager, who also provides the foreword and a story for the collection. It's a spooky collage of horror tales that seek to crawl under the skin and deconstruct the many ways women are built up and broken down by a patriarchal society, and the many ways they're finally saying, enough. Featuring 21 celebrated horror authors and striking cover art by Lorraine Hodge, who Olivia has instructed me to inform people is her mom. A Woman Built by Man is the perfect horror read to kick off 2022. Links to purchase can be found in the show notes. And speaking of notes, you'll never guess who I received correspondence from the other day. Remember Joanna, the reality-bending witch who almost ruined and ended my life in 2021? I've felt her specter looming over me since then. And I've known that one day she'd come back into my life. She did warn us of the dawn of the season of the witch, after all. I didn't expect her return to be like this, though. I'll read you the note. Dear David, I understand that I'm not your favorite person, but I need your help. I'm being pursued. The hourglass has fallen upon me. The goat is in the pasture screaming beneath a thousand stars. The campgrounds are being salted. The tent is being pitched. Five or six impaled on sticks. March on, march on, unlucky plus one. You understand. That's it. The whole note. (laughs) What a crazy old witch. In our first tale... We hear someone at the door, someone who wants in, someone, or perhaps it's something. In this tale, shared with us by author Jack Cade, we're going to have to open up to see who or what is outside. 
Performing this tale is Erica Sanderson. So put your hand on the doorknob, begin to turn it, hear the hinges creak, and ask yourself, who could be waiting outside that's such a chatterbox? By the chitter-chatter of my teeth, you will hear me. You'll be wrapped up and sleeping tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. While up the wooden hill, I'll be a-creeping softly. Nobody's awake but you and me. I've made sure of that. I don't want to share you with anybody else. At first, I'll scratch against your door, the nails of my little toesies and handsies sharp and rasping like broken bottlenecks against the wood. My poor old bones will be a rattling and a shaking in the cold night air I brought in with me, and the bellows in my chest that wheeze and creak like old oak trees will go up and down, up and down, with little clicks and clacks of dry leather in motion. I am so very lonely this side of the door. I will whisper to you through the keyhole. Let me in. I have no eyes to see, no tongue to taste, no ears to listen but I will know that you are there. The little wooden box with the little paper scroll that sits inside me, with the seven words upon it that give me life, burns like a red-hot brazier when you are close by. I feel a mercury quiver in my soul, a little warmth in my poor old wooden bones when you are near me. I cannot bear it when we are apart. You made me. Then when I no longer brought you pleasure or distraction... You abandoned me. You called me wicked when I ate the little chicks in their nest by the workshop. I gobbled them up one by one, their little feet still kicking as they went down. You locked me in the coal house for that, till the damp and the rain made my bones swell and my poor old joists and brackets ached with the cold. Seven days you kept me there. I could feel the woodworm and the rot begin to set inside me, as my teeth you made from seashells chattered till they sparked. I begged and begged for you to let me out. Then when my voice began to fail, I whined like a dog for you. You didn't understand. I only wanted you to love me. You let me out, eventually. Far too long to be down in the dark, says I. You made me in the workshop, behind the great house, with a few words of old magic and the breath of life. You gave me no eyes to see, nor ears, nor a nose. But you gave me the most wonderful smile. A lovely set of pearly whites set in Indian rubber inside my little wooden head. I called you sir, and danced and spun to your delight. It was my only wish in those days to please you, though sometimes I spoiled things and made you angry. I did not mean to. You tired of my dancing after some months, and soon you took to locking me in the workshop at night. I longed for your attention. I craved your love. In my jilted fury at your indifference, I took to thieving and petty acts of violence against creatures who could not resist me. This was, I believed, the only way to make you notice me. A year went by, and still you punished me, locked me away and called me horrid. A beast, an abomination. 
I tried ever so to win your affection, to just make you notice me. And when the little prentice boy from the tannery went missing in the village, oh, you noticed me then. You saw me all right. In your workshop behind the great house, I swore to you that I never touched a hair on his lovely flaxen head. But you called me a liar, and you said you'd watched me skulking past the lanes behind the tannery yards, tasting the piss-soaked air that wafted about the yards like a greasy yellow fog. You pulled me down and set my head upon the iron vice. There you wrenched my jaws apart and scraped and tugged and rasped until you found it buried behind my gums. A little bonny blue button, the same ones the Prentice boy wore on his overalls. You smashed my lovely white teeth with a mallet, till all but splinters hung from my soft rubber gums. You doused me in turpentine and pushed me into the fiery furnace, shutting the door as I tossed and turned and begged you and cried for mercy. I was a secret, a creature of old magic that must be burnt away to save the reputation of your name. None knew of my existence but you. In the hellfire of the furnace, I screamed as my bones turned to charcoal, though the air soon became soot-black and choking. I hit my brittle fists against the iron walls, but you did not hear me. Or perhaps you chose not to. I could feel the little box with the little scroll with the seven words you'd written upon it begin to burn. The seven words, each containing in them seven letters, each one a sliver of my soul burning away. I didn't want to die. So I climbed up the great soot pipe of the furnace, up and rising with the smoke. I couldn't see, and I couldn't feel. But still I climbed, till I could taste night air. When I reached the top of the smokestack, I rolled out and down the slanting roof slates until I landed in the woodpile behind the workshop, the fire in my bones still smoldering. There I lay... For three days and three nights, until I crept off into the fields behind the great house, knowing that you would not follow me there. I was lost and all alone in the world. It was cold out there among the rolling hills and blighted fields of gorse and blackthorn. I was hungry and frightened, though soon I learned the hardening ways of the wild woods, the old rules of tooth and claw and kill or be killed. I found that I could smell blood, or rather taste it at the back of my throat, like a drowning man tastes seawater. An iron and copper bite, a warm victual of red delight. In time, I made myself some new biters, some lovely pearly whites to replace the ones you broke. I took a handful from the jaws of a fox. The others were the bones of a wriggling pikefish, and when those broke... I took to sticking nails and broken glass and horrid thin needles into my raggedy gums. They were never as fine as the set you made me. I soon became a bad dream, a tricksy little goblin that followed lost travellers down lanes and across the hills. Nobody truly believed in me, but all the same, the people about the town locked their doors at night and barred the windows of their children's bedrooms. Not that it made any difference... I always find a way in. You see my new lovely pearly whites? Some of them belong to people once. It is so easy once you know how to pull and tug until they come loose, no matter how much a person screams. I've come to show you them. 
chatter, chatter. Can you hear them on the other side of the door? I know you can. They rip and tear lovely through the meat and marrow. I'm only a poor old bag of bones, but I knows how to butcher a beast, no matter what size. I know that soon you will need to sleep. Soon you will not have the strength to keep the door closed, and there is no other way out of that room. It is too high up, and the window too small for you to risk jumping. I can wait here forever. It is how you made me. Eternal life is what I have, and eternal patience. Soon, through hunger and thirst and madness, you will try to rush the door, to escape and take up arms against me. But you will find the other side of the door to be empty. I will not be there, but I will be somewhere in the great house. Maybe in the attic. Or in the cellars, cooling my poor old bones against the casks of wine. Maybe I'll be in the secret room behind the old clock in the study, the one you never talk about, the one painted black on the inside, the one you take young ladies into, who never come out again. You'll think it was all a bad dream, and soon you'll be sleeping in your bed again. Then, in the dark. One silent night, you'll feel a cold wind against your skin, and with it, the smell of rotting wood and damp leather. In the dark, you'll hear a scuttling, a sound like old branches snapping, and then you'll hear a chattering, chitter chatter, chitter chatter. I'll eat you slow, or I'll eat you quick. Maybe I won't at all. I'll just sit at the end of your bed, my teeth are rattling and a shaking, popping, snapping, biting, cracking in my little wooden head. The sound will drive you mad, I think, before I even take a bite. I'm ever so lonely this side of the door. Let me in. Ah, there's gold in them thar hills. Well, that's what they used to say. But now the hills no longer glitter. And in this tale, shared with us by author Alfred Rowdy, there's only coal left to recover. And when disaster strikes like a rogue pickaxe swing, everything is at stake. Performing this tale are Mick Wingert and Jesse Cornett. So when you're deep underground, don't give up hope. Pray for help. Surely something is around to hear the lament of the lonely miner. I used to be an average man. I'd come to Colorado chasing gold, but a failed claim left me miserable and penniless. Fleeing the mountain winter, I found myself in Louisville, one of the countless coal mining towns sprang from the prairie's roughshod. 
It was the age of steel and locomotives, and the world yearned to burn the bounty of coal brought forth from the depths below. The town was centered around a four-story tipple that towered over the Acme Mine. Skips full of shiny ore emerged from the shaft where the contraption of metal screens separated chunks of bituminous coal from the worthless cinder piled in a heap. The refuse smoldered with the remnants of fire suppressed, quietly crackling and entrenching the town with an acrid smoke. This was the view from my kitchen table, distorted through a cheap glass window. An admonition that a miner's work brings nothing more than grim survival. Unions were fast encroaching from the east, promising to elevate our prospects. But they had their own hazards. Lawmen opened fire with Gatling guns against a crew of striking workers at the Hecla mine a month prior. Three miners lost their lives, and trust was in short supply. I turned to God instead. The congregation met every Sunday, listening to the preacher call for the salvation of our souls. We hoped the heavenly world beyond would deliver the promises left broken and rotten in this one. I met my wife on the chapel's lawn after the preacher's Ash Wednesday sermon. She was a country girl from a potato farm right outside of town, poor like me, but her smile was radiant when our eyes met that day, with grease smeared in a cross on our foreheads. Both of her parents had succumbed to consumption, and she yearned to start a family of her own. Her name was Evie, and we waited the 40 days of Lent before consummating our love in a frenzy. We married two months later at the same church. The preacher gave his blessing, and I vowed to support her with my labor. We drew into a daily rhythm. I left for the mine at sunrise, she tended to the household, and we shared a few hours of leisure before bed. I pulled on my boots and left our company home through the front door. Outside, a layer of cinder ash covered the snow, turning the town pinkish brown. The mine entrance was past the burning waste heap, and the streets were filled with workers solemnly trudging through the cold. I shuffled in line with the others for my place in the elevator. We pressed shoulder to shoulder and back to front in the enclosure. A horn sounded before the cable unspooled from the pulley wheel and the metal cage began to sink into the earth. 180 feet to the level I was working, and nearly half a mile sideways to the edge of the drift. The light from the surface grew smaller as we descended past deserted levels their rich bitumen denuded in years past. Cage crunched to a halt at the bottom and somebody swung the rusty door. Men spilled into the tunnel, their lard lamps casting dimly on the low walls. Water seeped from the rock and collected in a stream running in the center of the tunnel. I marched through the damp corridors towards my destination prospecting drift at the end of the level where we were testing the direction and limits of the coal seam. Timber supports held the ceiling of the tunnel, but their frequency declined approaching the seam. A snowstorm in the mountains was preventing resupply from the timber trains, and each new beam had to carry twice the load. I met my crewmate where the supports ended. We called him Bagman 
the index and ring fingers he'd lost in a botched demolition. We each nodded our heads towards the other and got to work. The rock face was pockmarked with drill holes. A single chalk X marked the location of the final bore. I heaved the iron drill to the rock and held it in place, while Bangman struck the blunt end with a sledge. The sound of the drill reverberated through the cavern as it bit into the rock. I rotated the drill a quarter turn and repeated the process. The effort continued for a dozen minutes before we reached the flange indicating the correct bore depth. I fetched the explosives from a crate and unwrapped the wax paper around each before inserting the charges into the holes. Bangman followed me, checking the placement, capping the holes, and gathering the fuses. He demanded to verify every demolition arrangement since the accident that took his fingers. Once he was satisfied, we retreated from the drift face, stretching the detonation cords around the corner to a small alcove. Bangman pulled a match from his shirt pocket and struck it against the wall. Flame illuminated his dirty fingers as he lit the fuse. It sparked, and a glowing ember fizzled across the cord, around the corner, and toward the charges buried in the rock. We cowered in the shelter, waiting for the blast. I felt the familiar queasiness in the pit of my stomach. The anticipation lingered, then suddenly and violently, a wave of destruction swept past. First came the percussion, and then a rush of air, followed by a cloud of dust, and finally, the noxious smell of black damp. We left the alcove to see our work successful. Rubble piled on the floor and fresh fractures in the face. We began to clean up the debris lifting and shoveling slack into the skip until it was full to the rim. My crewmate walked toward the shaft to find the hoist cable for the skip. I turned my attention to the exposed coal where fractures had spread in a web across the seam. I attacked the ore with a pickaxe. Fist-sized pieces of coal satisfyingly crumbled from the wall. Aiming for a fracture at face level, tip of my axe struck a soft spot, and the crack expanded upwards. I took a step back and swung harder. The axe sunk further, and a square block of coal fell at my feet. I pulled the axe out, and the fracture spread all the way to the ceiling as it retracted from the rock. The line in the wall looked peculiar, traveling behind the edge in a way that I had not seen before. A rock fell from the ceiling and I jumped sideways to dodge it, dropping the axe and falling to the wet floor. The crack ripped across the ceiling above me. I craned my neck toward the skip and watched in disbelief as the fissure grew to meet the nearest timber beam. Beneath the timber, Bangman was struggling to attach the horse cable to the skip. Deep rumble following the fissure was enough to shift his attention to the roof. He froze in place. Eyes wide as saucers staring at his doom. I did not have time to call out. He turned to run, but was trapped. The timber splintered, and rock came crashing down until the tunnel was sealed. Echoes of crumbling rock and falling gravel continued afterwards. 
mangled leg attached to a bloody boot was the sole remnant I saw of Bangman. I bypassed the gore to inspect the fallen ceiling. It was impenetrable on all sides. Help! Can anyone hear me? The rock trapped my voice, not allowing it to escape from the chamber. I retrieved the drill we'd been working with minutes earlier and thrust it into the space between two boulders, pressing all my weight against the iron lever. It did not budge. Frantically, I stabbed the drill against the slack pile over and over, searching for a weak spot. The tool slid into a cavity, and I grunted as I pried a piece of stone off to reveal an opening. Peering into the void, I could see nothing. I brought the lard lamp closer. Thin fingers of light fled through the gap and illuminated the face of Bangman on the other side. Revolted, I sprang backwards and retched. The dead man was looking directly at me through the gap in the rock. In place of his left eye was a raw red hole where I had stabbed his head with the drill. I quickly extinguished the lamp. I could not bear to see the dead man's face any longer. A total blackness few men have experienced sank into every corner of that chamber. It felt heavy and oppressive, and the air reeked of bile. Utterly alone and afraid, I began to pray aloud. Lord, please forgive me. I have not led a perfect life, but I have tried to live by your name. I receive the sacrament and I follow your word. I beg that by your grace I will see my wife Evie again, for she makes me whole. If that is not to happen, then I ask for the salvation of my soul in the everlasting. Hours or days passed while I awaited rescue. Time was inscrutable in this coffin devoid of all light and sound. I sensed the grisly gaze of the dead man staring at me from beyond the rock. I saw flashes of light, pink, white, and green, but knew they were imaginary. When the silence became overwhelming, I tried to recite the Lord's Prayer but the words were all jumbled. Our Father of Heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom came and left me in silence, and your will be done beneath the earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily penance, and forgive me my sins, as we forgive them that leave us to rot. Lead us not into sunlight, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the darkness. Forever and ever. Amen. More time passed, and I lost the ability to distinguish between sleep and wakefulness. I dreamed in both, until the stillness was unexpectedly broken by a raspy voice. I am here to help you. 
are you? I am everywhere, and I am nowhere. The same as your current condition. Who, who are you? What do you want? The chamber remained in the deepest black. You have prayed for me, and I have listened. Your preacher has taught you the importance of the salvation of the soul. I can save your soul. Would you like me to do that? I began to weep. Tears running down my cheeks in the darkness. Yes, please. Save my soul. I will give everything for your grace. Then it is done. Your soul is saved. I have only one ask of you now. This place, this darkness beneath the earth, it is sacred to me. I ask for you to cherish it in the same way that I do. I ask you to stand guard in this place. tunnels of the Acme Mine remain below Louisville, as does the bargain I made that day. My soul has grown weary, saved long ago. I have become lonely, and that loneliness has turned to sorrow, and that sorrow has turned into a vengefulness I cannot escape. Sometimes the earth rumbles, and I dream of a sinkhole opening to the sky above. But I awake in rage within my silent tomb, condemned to reign over this darkness for eternity. Authors and storytellers can spring from all kinds of backgrounds. Video game developers, legal secretaries, soldiers, stable hands. You never know who might secretly possess a way with weaving words. But in this tale, shared with us by author Andrew Hughes, we meet a man whose storytelling prowess may be under threat. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, James Cleveland, and Penny Scott Andrews. 
So let's sit back and allow him to seduce us with his silver tongue, reel us in, and lead us down into the cellar. That night, as with every night for the past two moons, Jossen took the carriage into town to delight the inhabitants of the Black Dog Tavern. Previously known around town as the Half-Foot Fool, when Jossen first had entered the tavern with a moleskin notebook clutched in his pudgy hands, the owner of the establishment had only allowed him to read as a lark. The drunkards and harlots had fallen quiet, awaiting a good laugh. But no one chortled as the poetic prose flowed from his lips. That night, as with every night, when the story was finished, the room had erupted in a chorus of applause. Men had shaken his hand, their eyes glossy with tears of admiration. Women had wept and clung to his cloak. He used to blush in embarrassment at their adoration. He was once just a simple stable hand and had never known a woman's touch or a man's appreciation. But slowly, he became accustomed to their praise, and now he bathed in it as he drank and shouted out his tales. That night, when he finished reading and returned the notebook to his cloak pocket, the men applauded and the women rushed forward, all except for one. Jossen saw her through the throng, the beauty, the angel, the golden-haired goddess in the evergreen gown. She sat at the farthest table, leaned back in a chair, running her long pink nails around the mouth of her flagon. Her lips were pursed in wry amusement. She appeared unimpressed. Jossen pushed his way past the lustful women and shouting men and stumbled to her table. She watched his approach and any words he might have conjured in defense of his work vacated his thoughts. His knees went weak, and he leaned against her table for balance. The mead in her flagon swirled, then settled. G good evening, milady. Did you enjoy the reading? The woman smirked, then picked up her drink and brought it to her thin, pink lips. She drained it in a single swallow, and Jossen watched as it flowed down the smoothness of her throat. There seemed to be light emanating from her very presence. He averted his eyes and kicked himself for being foolish enough to approach someone of such high blood. Her voice flowed like velvet. It was good, but it was not what I searched for. The woman stood. Please... What is it you seek? The woman smiled and placed her fingertips upon his forehead. My name is Gasly, and I'm searching for the best tale ever told. I have traveled far to reach this town, because I've heard rumor of you, Jossen. But it appears they were mistaken. She removed her fingers and took a step towards the door. No, please... He clasped his hands. Let me read for you again tomorrow night. I will bring my very best work. She smiled, and her teeth glowed as white as fresh milk. Perhaps. With that, 
She seemed to float across the bar room and out the door. Jocelyn hurried to the bar and had the tavern owner hail the carriage. There was no time for drinking and whoring tonight, and the owner gave him the sack of coins for his work. When the carriage arrived, Jocelyn slipped out the back, gave the driver a handful of coppers, and told him to ride fast. The driver uncoiled his whip, and they galloped through town. Jocelyn pressed his face to the carriage window and searched for Gessley, but she was nowhere to be seen. And when they passed onto the dirt road that led to his shack, he leaned back and began to plan. He had a long night of work ahead. It would be hard work indeed, drawing out a story divine enough to enthrall her. When the carriage arrived, he bid the driver good night and shuffled to the door. There was no lock on his front entrance, for no one would think to rob a place so ramshackle. There were no gutters, and sections of the roof had caved in. Inside, the floorboards had rotten, and rats had chewed holes in his straw bed. Some night, when he lay upon it, he could feel the moving within. Jossen tossed the sack of coins upon the rickety kitchen table, then found a candle and matches. When the wick was lit, he strode to the wolfskin rug that lay beside the cooking pot. Kneeling, he yanked it back and revealed the trapdoor. Six iron locks held it in place. Jossen removed the keys from his pocket and twisted them one after another. Each fell away with a soft thunk, and he lifted the wood slab. Below, stone steps stretched into the blackness. A cool draft tickled the flame, casting flickering shadows as Jossen descended. He whistled as he walked. When he emerged in the musty cellar, Jossen set the candle on the workbench amongst the hammers, the pliers, and the spikes. I told another one tonight. He clutched his notebook in one hand and stepped forward. The candlelight fell upon his back, casting a dark shape upon the wall. There was a woman there, the most beautiful being to ever grace this land, but she wasn't impressed. I may have another chance, though. I need you to do better this time. The creature hung where Jossen had left it, its arms splayed out and affixed to the wall by chains. Its wings were pressed against the stone tight enough that they could not flutter, the creature was humanoid in shape, but far too small. The size of a child rather than any grown thing. The evergreen corset it had worn when Jossen had found it sleeping by the lake was torn to a loincloth that obscured its groin. But its skin was still a rich tan, despite being locked in the dark for weeks. As with every night, the previous wounds had healed, leaving no scars or traces of blood. The creature's eyes were pinched shut, and the rag was still in place, threaded through its mouth and tied behind its pointed ears. You can't hold out on me this time. She's searching for the greatest story ever told. Jossen dragged a stool across the dirt. He placed it in front of the creature and sat down. I'm in love, and I need something truly perfect for her. Air flowed from the creature's nostrils, 
but still it averted its eyes. The lids pinched shut so tight that its forehead quivered. Jossen reached out and pulled the rag from the creature's mouth. Come now, don't hold out. If you tell me a good story, maybe I'll take you for a walk. The creature did not budge. (sighs) Always the hard way. He stood, went to the bench, and picked up a hammer and a handful of spikes. Don't forget, I gave you the chance to be nice. Jossen started with a blow to its claw-like hand. The creature squirmed. He struck harder, cracking the fingers. The creature screamed, but did not open its eyes. For hours, Jossen went through his tools, driving spikes through limbs, clipping off claws, tearing off chunks of flesh. Finally, as he soared through its wing with a jagged blade, the creature opened its eyes and black tears flooded down from its golden pupils. Jossen dropped the saw, dove for his notebook, and placed it beneath the creature's pointed chin. As the tears struck page, they transformed into floral, looping writing. And as it sobbed on and on, the story spun forward of knights and princesses and high adventure upon distant mountain slopes. Sucking in breath, his arms quivering from their exertion, Jossen read the story as it unfolded. Soon he was crying too, for it truly was more beautiful than anything he could ever have fathomed. When the final tear fell and blossomed into the end, Jossen closed his notebook and slid it into the breast pocket of his cloak. Thank you. He shoved the gag back in the creature's mouth and cinched it tight. The golden eyes glared at him, and Jossen ruffled its evergreen hair. This is truly your best work yet. He picked up the candle, now only a nub, went back upstairs and fell upon the straw bedding. Outside, birds chirped and the sun rose, ushering in a new day. As he fell asleep, Jossen's mouth perked in a grin, for those pages held his destiny. When he woke late the next day, he ate a quick meal of venison and cabbage stew, then reread the story. Again, it brought tears to his eyes, and he kissed the parchment. This was his masterpiece. As night descended, purple, then black. He donned his best breeches and shirt. When he heard the drumbeat of hooves upon the dirt path, he checked the locks on the cellar, covered it once more with the wolf pelt, and went outside to meet the carriage. The tavern was packed that night, as more outsiders piled in to bear witness. Jossen made his way through the crowd to the stool in the corner of the room. The crowd fell silent, as he climbed to his seat. The notebook felt rough in his sweaty fingers. He cleared his throat and searched the sea of faces, but Gessley was not amongst them. His heart throbbed and his mouth ran dry. The crowd began to murmur, then someone shouted out, Get on with it already! There was a chorus of jeering support. 
Jossen sighed, his hopes as beaten as a hunting trail, and began to read. The story followed a young knight as he fled a bloodied battlefield in search of his love, Susanna. Across scorched fields and burning cliffs, he searched for her. Fighting dragons and demons and trolls, he searched for her. Until finally, he returned home alone, to find her ghost waiting for him. As the story ended, there was not a dry eye in the tavern. And when he read the final words, the crowd cheered and pounded their hands together so hard, pain flashed across their faces. They showered him with coin, and women reached for him, yearning to drown him in kisses and perfume. Men bowed and shouted for an encore, but Jossen stuffed the story into his cloak pocket and pushed his way through the throng, his head cast down. Before he could reach the door, he felt a hand on his shoulder, and her velvet voice flowed into his ear. That was true beauty. Jossen turned, and there she was, more heavenly than before, donned in a white gown fit for a priest's blessing of matrimony. Gesley leaned down and brushed her lips across his ear. Take me with you. The carriage rode fast through the night. Gesley stroked her hand through his hair, and Jossen felt the point of her nails brush his neck. He studied her and stammered for words. I... I did not think you would come. Gesley leaned back upon the wooden bench and smiled as she looked out at the passing forest. How could I have forsaken such potential? You had me last night, but I had to be sure it was not a fluke. You truly are the most talented storyteller I've ever bore witness to. Jossen bowed his head. How can one be so kind, yet so beautiful? Gesley stroked his neck. Only for you. They arrived at the shack, and Jossen gave the carriage driver a silver coin. He thudded down upon the muck and offered his hand to Gesley. She took it, and he led her down the steps and in through the door. Jossen rummaged around the shack, lighting every candle he could find until the room was as luminous as a shrine. Gesley studied the shabby decor. It is not much. Jossen produced a bottle of mead and two clay cups. But perhaps once the printing press arrives, I may buy a home in town. I think you should. Gesley eyed the wolfskin rug. For the two of us, and whomever we may create. Oh, y- y- yes, w- w- whatever you desire. And this? Gesley outstretched her hands. Is where you pen your stories? Yes, yes. Jossen strained, twisting the bottle. Finally, the cork came free. He poured the two mugs. This is where I write my stories. Gesley strode forward picked up one of the mugs, and downed it. Then I need to see what more you can do. She pressed her hands against his chest and pushed him backwards. Stumbling, Jossen landed upon the straw bedding. Within, the rats 
squeaked. Before him, Gessley brought her long nails to the straps of her dress. Jossen gulped, clutched his chest, and felt the notebook in his pocket. Gessley pulled the straps to the side, and the dress fell away. Thin, porous wings sprouted from her back, filling the room. Her face elongated and contorted, her ears growing points, her pupils glowed with golden fire, and when she spoke, her voice was a booming thunderclap that made the mausoleum of candles flicker. Where is my daughter? Jossen screamed and pushed further onto the bedding. One long, clawed arm shot out, grabbed him by the neck, and lifted him into the air. His stubby legs quivered as her grip closed around his windpipe. Gessley's mouth gaped wide, exposing pointed teeth. Tell me now! Jossen's vision swirled with the white, flickering candlelight. He raised one pudgy hand and pointed at the rug. Gessley hurled him at the pelt, and he landed hard enough to crack the floorboards. He tried to crawl away, pulling the pelt with him and exposing the locks, when a clawed foot dug into his back and pinned him to the ground. Open it! Jossen struggled beneath the grip, slunk a hand into his pocket, and produced the keys. He unlocked them one by one. When the last metal lock fell aside, Gessley reached down, wrenched the trap door open, and tossed him into the black. Jossen fell hard, struck his head upon the stone, and descended into a pit of unconsciousness. When he woke, his vision spun. He attempted to move his hands, but they were held tight by metal braces. Jossen blinked through the pane and caught a single glimpse of light pouring down from the opening in the floor. In the beam, he saw two silhouettes hovering on fluttering wings. Then the trap door fell, the lock clicked, and his world was consumed by black. The end. Imagine a world in which you're not complete until a partner has been chosen for you. Incorporeal, intangible, untouchable, watched over by mothers and courted by suitors, but merely a shadow of your eventual self. And in this tale, shared with us by author Faith Pierce, we're forced to confront the fear of being incomplete for all time and the possibility of a fate worse than that. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Nicole Doolin, Matthew Bradford, Kyle Akers, and Peter Lewis. So let's hope you find a match. Let's hope you can become complete. Otherwise, you'll find yourself bodiless. Hold up. 
I was twelve when I saw it for the first time. It was lying motionless, covered with a blanket up to its shoulders. Do you see that, Grace? Mother Jessica spoke with pride in her voice. That's your body, your gift. When you find your match, of course. We were in a long hospital room with narrow beds lining the walls, curtains drawn tight around each bed except mine. Mother Jessica had glanced around to make sure we were alone, sharp eyes sweeping the room for the tenth time since we'd entered, before she finally moved aside the curtains of the bed that held my body. I didn't know what to say. I offered a non-committal half-smile up at her. Would you like me to uncover it? Her expression was strange and unreadable as she looked down at me. Not discouraging, yet not inviting either. No. I shook my head as the blush crept up my neck. She smiled then, like I had passed some invisible test, and began closing the curtains around my body. I understand. She turned to walk back down the corridor aisle, her tapping heels echoing through the room while my feet moved silently beside her. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Don't worry. It won't be too bad once you have it. When you're with the right person. I wondered what Mother Jessica's right person had been like. If he had been kind, if he made her laugh, if she missed him. He was dead now, of course, but it was hard to imagine her ever having been around a man, touching him, being touched by him. I'd only ever seen her with girls like me. Her arms held so close to her own solid body, it seemed impossible that even air could fit into the space between them. I was 16 when the courting started. Groups of boys, laughing and putting hands over the sides of their mouths to whisper to each other as they were led through the school and seated in rows before us, the Glimmer Girls. They brought noise into our quiet world, rustling clothes and thudding boots, slamming doors and scraping chairs. But they would all fall silent and subdued when the mothers caught their eyes and glowered. All except one my first year. He would return the mother's meaningful gazes, and he would smile, unabashed and sincere, until they had no choice but to offer a reluctant, tolerant twist of their lips in return. This one was nothing special to look at, with freckles and a large nose, but it was that smile and the joy that radiated from him that made me love him. And so I waited tolerating conversations with the other boys who showed up each year and patiently watching as the other girls were spoken for and left the school in troves. I was 19 when my freckled, big-nosed boy asked for another girl's hand. I stayed in the dorm room for a month after that, refusing to meet with other boys, too broken-hearted to think of the consequences. Another glimmer girl tried to comfort me, 
told me the man who eventually chose me would be the right one because he chose me, and that my freckled boy couldn't have been because he didn't. I was 20 when they said it was time to leave the school. It's not that there isn't still time for you. We will continue to arrange meetings with young men who might be late in making their choices, or maybe a widower. But we don't keep young ladies at the school after 20. There's nothing else for us to teach you, you see. And we have to focus on the younger girls. Where will I go? There were stories about where unmatched shadow women went. The nicer stories had a special school, sad and lonely, but safe. Others claimed we would be put out on the street to fend for ourselves, or kept as examples for younger girls to mock, or sold to collections for lewd men to leer at in dark mansions. I thought up another possibility on my own, one I didn't mention to the other girls because I was too afraid it was true, and it crawled around my mind at night when there were no laughing girls or kindly mothers to make it ridiculous. I thought I would be sent nowhere at all. Maybe the mothers had a way of disposing of their unsuccessful students. My soul would be erased from existence, my empty body tossed into a hole. As if my thoughts were as transparent as my shadowy form, she said, None of the stories are true. We have lovely homes for unmatched young ladies. You'll still have a mother to help take care of you and keep you safe. There won't be so many of us. But you'll be more independent. Doesn't that sound nice? I tried to keep my lip from trembling. I had never been outside the school grounds. That was supposed to happen only when I had been given my body. It wasn't something to be faced as a helpless shadow. I knew there was no use, but I couldn't keep from blurting out, Why can't I just have it? Why can't I have it for myself? Mother Jessica looked abashed. That is absolutely out of the question. Not to go out into the world without a mate. But I could stay here and learn to be a mother like you. I could be useful. She was shaking her head vehemently. Ladies may not have bodies for themselves. They are a gift for your mate. You do not have a mate, and therefore have no one to give it to. Frankly, knowing you harbor ideas like this, I'm beginning to understand why. I'm not trying to be improper, but... That is enough. I will not hear another word about this. Silence fell, and she waited, making sure I would not continue arguing. I didn't. I stared at my hands, tears running down my face. Now, you are leaving for your new home tomorrow. As I said, we will continue trying to help you find a mate. If you behave and are agreeable, and trust the process... I'm sure you'll earn your body in no time. The house was a two-room cottage outside of town, tucked away from the rest of the world with a high fence. One room for the shadow women and one room for our bodies, laid out in bunk beds, 
no longer kept in sacred shrines. There were more than a dozen of us staying there, with one harried Mother Adelaide to care for our bodies, to keep us supplied and entertained as well as she could, and to chaperone when the not-so-young men came to visit. These men had none of the bravado and good humor of the boys who visited our school. These men were sad, often angry about being sent to the house of castoffs for being too old or too poor or undesirable in other ways. They came into the house with an air of having been wronged, full of entitled righteousness. I had no patience to match their ill temper with agreeableness, and so the dozen shadows rotated while I remained to haunt the sad little house. I was twenty-three the first time I saw a solid person that wasn't either a mother or someone accompanied by a mother. I was alone in the yard. I had heard groups of children in the houses next door many times before then, but I had never seen them. Now, the first time I stayed behind, when Mother Adelaide and the others went to the monthly service held especially for shadow women, it appeared like it had been waiting for an opportunity. It peered at me over the high fence as I strolled through the yard, and I started. I wanted to demand, Who are you? But my voice caught in my throat. I gaped at the small face. It belonged to a boy of twelve or thirteen, and he grinned at me. You're a nothing girl. It wasn't a question, so I didn't answer. I heard other voices begin chattering excitedly through the fence, and gathered that they had manufactured some kind of platform to see over the fence. He kept grinning. We saw those others leave. You all by yourself, lady? I glanced back toward the house, wanting to lie, but knowing he wouldn't believe me. I shrugged. Before I knew it, he had been given a boost, hopped over the fence, and stood in front of me. I gave a strangled cry and leapt back, but he was followed by three other boys in quick succession. They formed a semicircle before me. I had never talked to boys like these. I had never talked to any solid human at all without a mother around to supervise. Two of the boys were taller and looked a little older than the first boy, the leader. One was smaller. They stood staring at me, brazen. To my shock, the leader stuck his hand out and ran it through my waist, something no one had ever done to me my entire life. I gasped and stumbled back as he chuckled. Ha! Awesome. They can't hurt you, I reminded myself. That's the whole reason you don't have your body. You're safe. My stomach flipped at his next words. So, uh, is it true? He inched closer to the house. Is your real body in there? No, I said, too fast. He gave a wicked grin and sprinted toward the house, his companions close behind, hooting and laughing as they went. No! I followed them, but was helpless to shut the door or lock them out even if they hadn't gotten there first. 
I found them in the room with the bodies, staring around in open wonder. Stop! You have to leave. You have to. Someone will come back. You're not supposed to be here. You can't do this. It's against the rules. I was praying that they wouldn't notice my body, that looking at the dozen empty women lying there would be enough to satiate whatever mad desire brought them here, and they would leave. But the leader followed my gaze and lighted on my body, covered to the shoulders, and his lips curled. This you, huh? He jabbed his finger into his shoulder. I cried out as though in pain, though I couldn't feel it. I had never seen anyone touch my body, ever. Only the mothers were allowed, and they did it in privacy, with the utmost respect, we were told. He laughed at my reaction, and the other three clustered around, mischievous energy coursing through them as they bounced on the balls of their feet and twisted their fingers in anticipation. One of them pinched its cheeks and pushed them up into a ghoulish smile. Look, she's happy to finally get a little attention. <laughs> Another ran his fingers through its hair, then pulled it and watched my face for a reaction. He must have liked what he saw there, my frozen horror, because he yanked it again and laughed. <laughs> then, in one sudden motion, the first boy ripped the cover from the body. I screamed and covered my face. How could the first time I saw it be like this? Please! This is against the rules! <laughs> but I was drowned out by their laughs and howls of amusement. None of the rules designed to protect me were working, and I knew then that I must have brought it on myself. My stubborn refusal to follow tradition and find a mate, my foolish whim to stay home alone that day, Mother Adelaide had given me a disapproving frown when I asked if it was allowed, but shrugged her shoulders and left without me. Through the humiliation and terror, a harsh voice bit at me. You deserve this. The children's hands began to travel over the inert form, squeezing and prodding, turning it over on its side and exploring every crease. One of them pulled a marker out of his pocket and began drawing obscene scrawls over the stomach, arms, and breasts as I wept. What the hell is going on here? <sighs> a man's booming voice cut through the room and we all jumped, the marker clattering to the ground. I turned and saw through my wretched tears a man, tall and bearded, maybe forty. What the hell are you kids doing? We were just messing around. Shame on you. Get the hell out of here now. Be glad I'm not calling the authorities. The boys fled, leaving us alone in the room. The man standing awkwardly in the doorway while I collapsed, falling to my trembling knees and trying to comfort myself that at least it was over. He waited several moments before asking. Are you all right, miss? I rose shakily and tried to compose myself. I think so. He stood watching me in awkward silence, and I remembered myself enough to whisper, Thank you. He nodded, 
I always thought it was a shame how they treat women like you. Left with so little protection, no way to keep a body safe. I couldn't find the words to answer, and my throat was thick, my shadow body shaking, so I only nodded. I couldn't stop staring at the exposed flesh, streaked in marker and dirt from the boy's hands, and I wanted to beg for him to cover it up, but I was too embarrassed, as though acknowledging the naked body would make it real. Then I lifted my eyes to his face and decided it would be better. Much better, if he would just leave. Please leave. Because his eyes had begun darting from my shadowy figure to the solid body beside him, and in those eyes was something hungry. Our mother will be home soon, I said, and my voice was false and desperate. Such a shame... He spoke as though he hadn't heard me. His voice had shifted, a new note of falseness and greed. These poor bodies just left here, no use at all. His eyes lifted to meet mine then, and I couldn't speak, could only stare back at him in terror. I could help you. I could keep it safe. He moved toward my body and didn't seem to expect a response. Didn't seem to care what the response would be. I watched in stunned silence as he carefully wrapped it and lifted it into his arms. It would be far safer with me than here, with so many other bodies to care for. He moved slowly toward the door with my body. And now he was watching me, waiting to see if I would protest. And my mind screamed for something to say that could make him stop. But the objection rose to my lips and died there. It wasn't really mine to fight for, had never been mine, and now would never be mine. And maybe he was right. Maybe this was another way of being chosen. A terrible way that nobody had bothered to warn me about. The real story of what happens to unmatched shadow women. The neck rested securely in the crook of his arm, and I watched the head loll back over his elbow, hair swaying down his side. He turned, and the body's feet brushed the doorframe with a harsh knock, concrete and substantial. They had never worn shoes. I had never held a pair in my hands and bent over to tuck feet into them, felt the tight security of limbs encased in tangible warmth. My eyes stayed glued to those dangling feet as he left. I wondered if he would put shoes on them.
In our final tale, we join a young woman just as she reaches safety with her bag of stolen mail. The letters contained within tell a startling story as a young Civil War soldier recounts the horrors of war to his little sister. But in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, there are even more horrors lurking beneath the blood and grime of the battlefield. I join Jessica McAvoy, Jeff Clement, David Alt, Dan Zapula, Peter Lewis, Mike Delgadio, Wafia White, and Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So join us as we head into the past and stitch together this soldier's life. It's made of three pieces. Wheels ground over gravel. The shadow of home lay before me. An almost ancient but nondescript single-floor brick-and-stone shanty that doubled as a tourist trap. As such, it utterly failed. Every day. Good thing, too, I thought, pulling the new Challenger up to my not-so-new Harley and the run-down Ford Focus I'd brought for the help. I yawned. I sniffed the air to judge the time. It close again. I drew the keys from the ignition and pocketed them on the inside of my jacket. Red leather, as bright and shiny as new blood. Black would have been less noticeable, of course, as far as leather jackets were concerned. These days, black would have passed for normal, made it easier for me to not draw attention to myself, blend in, disappear into the crowd. I knew it. I wasn't stupid. I'd been taught. I just didn't give a fuck. Not far from the safe house, just before the drop, jutting up from its stony base like a hundred-foot-high middle finger flicking off the world, or at least the ocean, the lighthouse still stood. It, too, was dark. For practical purposes... It hadn't been needed in more than a century. I couldn't have said whether the lamp up top even worked. But I'd been told, by someone who would know, that the lighthouse once guided Confederate supply ships home under the cover of night. Prior to that, it had protected ships that came in from the Middle Passage, shining over the shoals that lined the South Carolina coastline like a warning from the devil himself. Evil was cooked into its very mortar, a wickedness far surpassing my own. And that is saying something. I parked the car, stepped outside, and stared up into the soft-falling rain. Blinked at the cloud-shrouded moon. It was the only light in the sky, hanging low over the still waters of the cape. I drew forth the plastic preservation baggie and held it up under the glow. Not that I needed any glow. Seemed appropriate somehow. A memory flickering back to when I was little. Inside, a small stack of square papers gone dull gold with age, curled and cracked at the edges. I turned them under moonlight, not really studying them. I could have read them, 
each and every page, even under the hard white cardstock that concealed the writing on both the top and bottom of the stack. My talent for far-seeing had both grown and evolved with time and practice, but there was no need. The moon dropped by slow degrees ever nearer to the sea. It would be light soon. The tape label on the back of the baggie read, Item, Correspondence of Lieutenant Carlisle Fick, age 25, Union Army, Letters from Gettysburg, July 1st to July 3rd, 1863. There exists no record of these pages ever being made public. Noted as support to theories regarding the incident in Mayfield, Delaware, dated June of 1988, and to the incident at Fairview Juvenile Correctional Center, dated December of 2007. I smiled to myself. Mayfield, 1988. Fairview, 2007. Good times. This better be you. I turned from the moon, from the lighthouse, and trudged the final few yards to my own front door. Inside, a light came on. It's my birthday! I had just stepped inside. Twenty-one today. I cocked an eyebrow at her. Really? I offered a half-smile sitting down at the desk with the tourist brochures and hauling off my boots. My jacket and the weapons that lined the inside of it would come downstairs with me as usual. I stood and offered her an amiable kiss on the cheek, patting it afterwards. Should have said something earlier. I might have brought you a present. You did anyway. Maybe a bonus? And she winked at me. She was always on time. Totally reliable. I trusted her as much as it was possible for me to trust anyone. I opened the safe behind the desk, working the combination through in a half-second blur of fingers, then counted out the money. The Benjamins, as she called them. Her standard payment for a day's watch was $500. Today... I counted out an even grand. Happy birthday. I handed it over and resealed the safe. Long night. Raided the Office of Investigative Securities at FBI Quantico. You know, the usual. How about you? Doing anything fun later? Unsure. What did you do on your 21st? Shot a man named Gus who wanted to fuck me. I went to the windows, drew down the blackened metal blinds, rolled the carpet back off of the trap door that led to the basement, curled my finger around the drawing. Can I come with just for an hour? Tell me a story? I sighed, hauling the trap door open. Not tonight, Faye. Sorry. Why not? It was practically a pout. I came to her again, took her hand. Homework. Then, quick as thinking, with my other hand, I slid the trapper bracelet over her wrist and clicked it fast. 
If the trapdoor opened again from this floor instead of from the basement, the alarm would sound, and three cc's of liquid cyanide would enter her bloodstream. I trusted her, much as I could, but only a dumbass antes into the game without cutting the deck. Lafayette was untroubled. It was all very standard. Tonight, someone's going to tell me a story for a change. She shook her head, not understanding, knowing full well I wouldn't explain. Maybe after the sun goes down. I started down, offering her a finger wave. We'll see, birthday girl. I pulled up a chair, set my laptop off to the side, and opened the preservation baggie. Gently, I shook out the letters, brushing away the cardstock coverings with unaccountably tremulous fingers. Okay, been a while since I've played Keeping Up with the Johnstons. It was too much to hope, anyway. Whatever correspondence Casper had sent to his South Carolina relation during the Civil War, I doubted very much it would have been anything telling. Dearest Catherine, it began. I sniffed. I hadn't lit any candles. I didn't own a lamp. My phone stayed in my pocket, powered off. Even the wall sconces for torchlight remained empty. I didn't need any light to recognize Casper's handwriting, his bold and flowing cursive as unmistakable and as perfect in life as it had been in death. His letters lay before me in the black, without casting so much as a shadow at their edges. I read them in the dark. July 1st, 1863. Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Dearest Catherine, It was with great satisfaction and pride that I read your letter last week. My heart swells at the thought of you finishing school and in taking your first responsibilities with the little ones. They are most fortunate, though they may not know it. I have no doubt you will be merciless in the matter of their improvement. You always were the willful one, even at the tender age of eight. Has it truly been that long? I pray that the war never comes to you, that the new commander, General Meade, never marches south, as Hooker did before him to his sorrow. Let the matter be resolved here, for better or for worse. I would that you should never see anything like it as long as you live, though I shall do nothing to soften the horrors in their telling. Hell has come to Pennsylvania, and I would hold it here if I could. I miss you. I hope this letter finds you, but it may be many days hence before I shall be able to send it, if ever I can. There has been no opportunity in recent days to ferry correspondence north to south, nor do I expect any middleman will dare it for some time to come. I should have had my own on hand when I received yours. There has been no time. 
the march has been relentless. There are men in other companies who pressed on without shoes until they got here, hobbling about on bloodied feet until the townsfolk could see to them. But that, I fear, must be counted amongst the least of our difficulties, and scarcely worth mentioning in the light of what has since befallen. A great fighting force has descended upon us, and there is little doubt that we have found here that very thing that, in our madness, we have sought now for weeks, the Army of Northern Virginia. We have found General Lee, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he found us. I think, now that you are twelve years of age and a proper young lady, you shall be able to weather the shock of what I here recall. There must be a record of it, not only for you, but for father and mother. I know that their anger with me has not been assuaged with the passing of a few years. They would have had me come home from university as soon as that first shot was fired on Fort Sumter, if not before. They would have had me remain loyal to South Carolina and to my family. I love them still. I would have our family endure. But my true loyalty, I reserve for you. I will see you again, Catherine. I promise. Nothing short of death will stop me. I keep my promises. Yet, the threat of death is omnipresent. It is imminent. The sounds of death encircle the encampment. The grinding of the bistery and bone saw. The screaming of muzzled men. I can hear it sing from across the battlefield, carrying up the slopes of Cemetery Hill. I hear the drum and the fiddle and the fife. The voices of men who've come up from Chancellorsville and crossed the Potomac. Many among them, in the coming days, will cross the greater river that brooks no return. Men who might have come from my own home, my kin. The stench of death is in the air. They say that all roads lead through this place, this small and insignificant town. In this part of Pennsylvania, I think that it must be true. How else can it be that two such forces found each other, unless it is by some intelligence or network of spies? If so, I would have no knowledge of it. There were only 100 men in my company when dawn broke this morning, not counting myself and Captain Hainsworth. Most of them are dead now, I think. The captain is dead. Major General Reynolds who brought in our entire division of infantry, is dead. I am not a man of importance. I would not know of any special intelligence. And yet I think that tomorrow it will be on me to lead what remains of this company. Dread closes in on me like cold fire. My heart quails. In the early morn, the fighting will begin anew. The bloodshed will be worse. But first I must survive this night. 
The hour advances toward midnight. The darkness gathers and swells over flickering campfires. The songs of the enemy fade to nothing, but the screams and sobs from the surgical tents remain, as will the memory of this day. I shall never forget it, nor shall I ever speak of it openly. But for you, little sister, and for our family, I make an account of it here. It must be surmised that they came chiefly for supplies, just as we had. Considering the devastation wrought upon farmlands to the south, it can be safely presumed the Army of Northern Virginia thought to make much of the rich fields in this part of Pennsylvania. Our army was already in place, and it must be assumed that we outnumbered them in total. And yet at the place of our first engagement, there is no doubt that we were overmatched, for our forces were already spread thin throughout the town. The first volley caught my company unawares. Captain Hainsworth and I were discussing the matter of requisitions. Corporals Denning and Hicks were on hand to relay directives to the rest of the company. We'd taken shade under a spreading catalpa tree, our captain lamenting the shortage of pipe tobacco. When we heard the rifle fire, the terrible whizzing of the mini-balls, it was all about us. An explosion of splinters and a hole the size of a man's fist suddenly appeared in the tree at eye level between us. In the next instant, the captain's shoulder erupted with bone and blood, and he dropped without a sound as though shot dead on the spot. Before I rightly understood what was happening, the men of my company withered under that first hailstorm of ruinous fire, many of them taken right off their feet by the ungodly concussion of impact. I saw it happen through a film of blood and ragged flesh. Not mine, but Captain Hainsworth's. And then they were upon us. Much has been said of that fabled Confederate cry, that baleful, eulalating battle scream of the South. But nothing I've heard does it justice. It is a weapon unto itself, a poison of spreading fear, rising up first from a distance and growing in strength like a swiftly gathering storm. We had just enough time before our forces collided to meet the onslaught with a hastily ordered volley of our own. It was Corporal Hicks who had managed the order. I did nothing other than to ready my own first shot. It was a failure of leadership, Catherine. I wonder yet that I had even the will to ready my gun. The business of war, as I had understood it, was a tragedy and a hardship, but also a well-ordered business where the stage and its props were agreed upon in advance. What a fool I was. War is butchery and terror and selfishness, the dawn of understanding under a smoke-stained sun. It is the reek of scorched and torn flesh and human filth. 
It is the shrinking of space between you and the enemy, which happens so fast as to make a second shot impossible before they are upon you. Then, the chief weapon of one's gun is the bayonet at the end of its barrel. War is the screech of steel as swords are drawn, the vomit of blood, a pandemonium of screams. I was not made for it. But in the moment, war was somehow also my pistol cutlass coming out from my belt firing of a ball into the open mouth of a nameless foe, driving with the blade over and over again into a man already dead until my right hand was sheathed in gore. How he stared at me with blank eyes over a mouth of shattered teeth. How he held me by the shoulders as I killed him. He was, very likely, somebody's brother. A mother's son. A man plans for his life. I pushed him off of me, onto his knees, and kicked him onto his back. As war raged all about me, I dropped next to him and was helplessly sick. It was a wonder I was not struck down then. Anyone could have had me in that moment. Men from my company, I guessed, for I knew not exactly who, gathered me each under an arm and hastened me away. And though the reinforcements arrived swiftly, it was only to make possible our retreat. Back through town, what was left of my company sped, thence to fortify at Cemetery Hill. There we thought to claim the higher ground and thus a brief respite. And here I have remained though the fighting resumed soon enough. For the man who had rescued me, thinking me grievously injured, had delivered me at once to the surgical tents. I did not protest. I did not tell them that the blood on my hands and my face was not my own. I let them lay me down on ragged burlap sacks that must now pass for blankets and depart. I did not acknowledge them. It was not for lack of courtesy, I swear. I could not speak, for I had again opened my eyes, and what I beheld then took my breath. I lay flat on the ground alongside a wooden table, the bottom of which seeped with dripping blood. The whole thing shook. It creaked under the labors of the surgeons who leaned over it so that I could not see their faces. Nor could I see the subject who lay upon the table. And I could hear him wailing under a gag or a bit as men held him, as one of the saw bones ground through his shin bone and the other cut through muscle and ligament with the bistory. They were done in moments, and a hand tossed the severed limb onto a small pile that lay right next to me under the table. A hand, a complete arm, a foot, and now another foot with half of a leg besides. The sawbones then set to securing the tourniquet, presumably just below the knee. When the hands reached for me, I at first feigned unconsciousness. 
they would soon realize I had suffered no injury. I did not wish for them to discover that I had willfully allowed myself to be removed from the fighting while it yet raged on. I waited until they had me on the table and one had busied himself mopping my face clean with a cloth. Only then did I again open my eyes. Where am I? Had my ruse succeeded? It seemed not, for it was with a quick and deepening disapproval both the elder and the younger sawbones regarded me. And then the elder one, who could not have been a day older than thirty, seethed at me. Go. Do your duty, Lieutenant. I knew him. Dr. Abner Rusk, of the pressed shirt and silken black vest, renowned with the long knives, a veteran of countless engagements. His fine clothes were bloodied, his countenance so rife with judgment that his younger counterpart didn't dare a single word. The soldiers who remained in the tent with him likewise kept silence. The highest in rank among them was a non-commissioned artillery sergeant, or so I gathered from the red chevrons on his sleeves. None of them could tell me what to do. And yet I fairly slunk away from them, my cheeks as hot with shame as a freshly chastised child. Still faint, I stumbled and lurched through the tent flap. And once I was out, I saw plainly who had brought me here, for they had returned. Corporals Denning and Hicks, bearing with them now the semi-conscious form of Captain Hainsworth, who'd taken shot not only to the right shoulder, but also the right leg. He made no sound with his mouth, yet his eyes darted right and left, panicked, only half seeing. But his men... Our men saw me, their eyes clouded with accusation and judgment. Coward. Farther off, the thunder of battle had quieted again, ebbing to the rumor of an occasional wasted shot, the occasional voice raised from one side calling out in an attempt to goad the other into reckless action. I straightened myself summoned authority to my voice. Where is the rest of our company? Denning only shook his head at me. Hicks didn't even look at me. They passed inside the surgical tent. I trudged off, determined to discover the truth of it myself. It didn't take long to find. The wide, thin line of our forces was less than a mile away from the makeshift surgical encampment. Standing back, I beheld what remained of my men, scattered hither and yon within that line, absorbed by the reinforcements, taken in by a new captain I did not know. How many there were, exactly, I had no way of knowing. I think less than twenty. I did not go to them. I turned from them. I wandered. If the Army of Northern Virginia had encircled the entirety of Cemetery Hill, I risked encountering them with every step I took. I took cover behind trees where I could, but those were sparse. 
Doubtless, there were long stretches of open plain I not only trod but retrod as I walked the day away and watched the sun drop lower to the horizon. In the end, even as the battle resumed in earnest, I found myself again at the surgical encampment. And, passing from one of the tents to another, mahogany amputation kit in hand, Dr. Rusk found me. Very well, Lieutenant. I found myself short-handed. Come, if this is all you're good for, then this is how you shall make yourself useful. It takes not much training at all, Catherine, to learn the ways of the sawbones. Many of the most experienced now among them came to the battlefield with minimal formal education, although Dr. Rusk was an exception. One observes and then, as necessity dictates, performs. Nevertheless, it was not on me to perform any of the surgeries that harrowing day. A good thing, too, as far as the patients were concerned. I held them down. Others watched, intent on learning the grim business, as Dr. Rusk proceeded from lecture to scalpel to Caitlin knife to bone saw. He made note, as I immobilized that first subject, of the circular motion he employed. This was for quickness, to better avoid the patient dying from pain or from shock. No amount of anesthetic was sufficient to quell the agony when serrated steel met bright white bone. Never. It was a ghastly, sickening affair, but I held on as I could. I did what I was told to do. Was this my courage, which had fled the battlefield so readily? Or was it merely the terror of the battlefield that held me there until day became dusk? By the time night had fallen, I found myself officially reassigned, if only temporarily. The doctor had found a task I could perform, and I can only presume it was of greater importance that I perform it than to face my own grim punishment for the dereliction of duty. Captain Tanner issued the order, remain on hand as Rusk's assistant, and then stand sentry through the night. Braver men than I required their sleep. Will I be returned to them in the morning? Shall I not be given a second chance to prove my worth, if only to myself? Do I wish for such a chance. I have sacrificed the love of my parents for a duty which I have since failed utterly. All who know me in the Army of the Potomac must despise me. There is no point in living anymore, no purpose in surviving this tribulation, in waking from this terrible dream. None, unless it is to see you again little sister, for your love has been steadfast, even as our world is torn asunder. My relief approaches. Perhaps I am to have an hour or two of sleep as well. Pray for me, Carlisle. July 2nd, 1863. 
Gettysburg. Catherine. I awoke early. I had a sense my letters had been disturbed. And indeed, as I rose up in the tent and lit my small lamp, I found them scattered about the small stool upon which I had placed them, using a small stone for a paperweight. I... You will not believe me, sister, if ever you read this. You will think me either mad or drugged, but it is not so. I see it clearly in my mind. The papers that comprised yesterday's writing, rising up from the packed earth as though borne upon a deliberate wind, or the deft, invisible fingers of a restless spirit. And that spirit... Catherine, I swear as God is my witness, spoke to me. Can you hear them, child? Are you listening? Is your mind awake? The papers swirled about me as I tracked them with wide eyes. About me, the two patients who occupied this tent with me slept on under the soft blanket of morphine. I drew in breath. Do not scream. In that moment, I found I did not have to. Instantly, the desire to do so evaporated from my lungs completely. Not as though from any relief or fear, but as though my very instincts, my emotions were commanded from afar. Strange that I should have taken comfort in this, yet I did. The voice in the dark, strange and foreign in my ears, bore me no ill will, though it compelled me with authority. It was the voice of a teacher, a mentor, a guide. You yearn for family. For brotherhood, I understand. The papers rearranged themselves on the stool. The stone that had held them in place rolled back up one of the stool's legs and repositioned itself. Where are you? I called out, heedless of any who might hear, of the injured men who lay but feet away. Who are you? fell silent. I am here with you. I am an angel of life and death, one of many. I have been watching you. You have been sent for. Strange that fate should put you here tonight, alone in a field of enemies on either side, but never mind. Here we are. Someone I know is looking for you, Carlisle Fick. It was the thing's first utterance of my name. And in only that, only in my name, did I hear any contempt. I had an inexplicable sense that whatever entity occupied the small space inside the tent with me somehow held me personally of some value all while harboring nothing but scorn for my name. 
but I asked no more questions just then. I did not speak. Do not misunderstand. He did not name you. He does not know you. He seeks only for one like you. Lost, afraid, and alone. He does not seek you for who you are, but rather for what you will be after he has done with you. He wishes for someone who will listen, Carlyle Vick. I thought myself a good listener, although I did not think myself especially adept at blind obedience. This friend of yours. <laughs> a slow, deliberate chuckle under lamplight. Friend? But why not? No, do not ask, Lieutenant. All things in hell and on earth are but a drama, an amusement and distraction to either behold or experience on a whim, and all for nothing. But that end can be far off for you, child, very far off. You need only do what I tell you. Your pardon, I said, my bewilderment only amplified by each word the thing spoke. Terror threatened. True terror, bubbling up from the heart like a kettle of cold blood. Why me? Oh. But what a delight it shall be if he takes you in. There is chaos in your veins, that which we call Obsange. I have it as well. There is murder buried deep behind those eyes, mayhem in your soul. None of which I deemed fair or true. You shall be good for him, Lieutenant. You... I started, feeling the need to fight down the spell of its voice, this self-evident evil. My voice faltered with effort and fear, but when the thing did not rebuke me, I continued. You're... you're a devil. Show yourself. I reached for my belt, where I expected to find my sword. But of course... It was not there. Neither was my belt. My entire uniform, minus trousers, lay folded by the empty food sacks that served as my bedding, and my sword lay underneath that. Certainly. A figure resolved into view before me, as though woven from the dank, stale, blood-tinted air inside the tent. There... Impossibly, stood Dr. Abner Rusk. He smiled, and his teeth fell out, one at a time, until only the incisors remained. These last glittered and grew and sharpened at the ends. I caught my breath, but then the thing turned a full circle. And when it again faced me, I saw Captain Tanner, who had ordered me to this post. What devil do you wish me to be, Carlisle Vick? 
For I can wear any face that I have seen, any face I can pluck from your memory. Then it was me, smiling with two full rows of teeth and unconcerned. But the fingers of its hand were cold when he patted my cheek. Dead worms that somehow still moved with living blood. The edges of its nails pricked against my clammy flesh. Captain Angus Johnston. Find him, Lieutenant Fick. It will not be difficult to do. He has been in your head on and off for all of this evening. I do not know any captain of that name. No, you would not. The thing turned again, this time towards one of the rough mattresses that supported the two patients. He is not a soldier in your army. Go. Walk. You will find him. Then the thing descended on the nearer of the two mattresses, mouth wide, placing its hands on either side of the young soldier's head, thumbs pointing in towards the neck. The soldier, a lad that had confessed to Dr. Rusk that he was, in truth, only 17 years old and wanted to go home, wanted his mother had survived a double-leg amputation at the kneecaps. But the thing that looked down upon him now, with my face, had no mercy in its eyes. And he was done talking to me. At least, for now. With its thumbs, the phantom parted the flesh of the boy's neck like curtain folds, spilling fresh blood. And again, Rather than confront the evil right in front of me, I fled. Gracelessly, I stumbled from the surgical tent and into the encampment proper. No sooner had the fresh, blessed nighttime air of the outside enveloped me than I came to realize what a reek I had just escaped. It was not only the stench of blood, the thick air of close quarters with injured men, was worse. There was a burning quality to the smell somehow that I cannot rightly explain. Hell's own brimstone, broiling dead human skin. I walked past the fading embers of campfires, past sentries, beyond the tents with the lamplight flickered out one after another. I had no destination in mind other than out. And though the gaze of more than a few men on duty followed me, darkly, as I could not help but notice, for it would be clear to any that I had no destination in mind, no one stopped me. Officers with the power and the right to do so did not keep sentry within a camp already secured at its borders. Towards the south of Cemetery Hill, I walked, not knowing the time, not caring. Once I was out of sight of the men, and yet before meeting the outmost ring of troops behind the makeshift fences on the firing lines, I saw it. A small, black, winged creature flitting from the branches of one tree to another. I heard its small, squeaky shriek and discerned right away what it was. A bat. 
evening bats and Seminole bats, both calming back home at Cape Matador, I thought rare in Pennsylvania. I'd never seen one here before. And again, from that tree to yet another, I followed it. Was this what the killing, carnivorous wretch in the tent had asked of me? Foolishness, I thought to myself. Bloody foolishness, Carl Fick. You, sir, are throwing your life away for madness. Still, I followed. And as I did, I felt the first hint of true madness tickle at the ragged edges of my soul. When up from the ground, the spiders emerged, coming up like earth-born vomit. Little coughs of dirt, and up they scuttled from the shallow ground, quick and purposeful. I do not know how many of them there were. More than a dozen, less than a hundred. Their small black bodies moving together as one, their unholy synchrony more akin to a flock of birds than a chaos of pestilence. Until they were upon me. The voice of the thing in the tent whispered in my mind. You are being tested. Do not be afraid. Keep going, Lieutenant. I did as the voice commanded. I imagine Moses might have felt something similar, being commanded at the burning bush. When one is given the command from the unknown, one obeys. And so I continue, following the fluttering bat from one tree to another, neither slowing nor increasing my pace as the skittering monstrosity scuttled up the legs of my pants, fluttering thence under the tail of my nightshirt. My skin prickled under their pinches. My clothes breathed with their presence. Looking down, I could see that none of them were on the ground anymore. They were upon me, tickling at my neck as I crested a low hill, nesting in my hair. But at my feet, there now appeared a scurrying coven of rats, chittering their secret obscenities with evident delight. Every now and again, as I followed both them and the moonlight-silhouetted bat, they turned their glassy, blank eyes upon me and seemed to smile encouragement. The bat, then, I lighted on the lowest branch of a mighty elm tree, hanging upside down by long talons. Its eyes turned over in black sockets to reveal... I blinked certain I could not be seeing this rightly. But there they were, staring right at me. Two impossibly large eyes, irises of blue, tracking my approach. It had human eyes, Catherine. The bat had human eyes. You will call it lunacy, When you show mother and father this letter, they will confirm for you my insanity. It is self-evident. They will call it the surrender of a mind racked with betrayal and guilt. All back home who come to hear of it will agree. They will say that it was a punishment handed down by God. Perhaps it is. My only defense is that it is also the 
truth. I came closer, and as I did, the wings of the bat unfolded into human arms. Its talons let go, and it descended feet first onto the ground. Standing as a man wearing a ragged and torn uniform of Confederate gray. This man, if man he was, tipped his hat at me and grinned. Absalom Johnston, and you must be Casper. Welcome. Casper, I thought. No, that's not me. There's some mistake. But of course there is. They're not so fucking fast. Another voice, similar to the first yet separate from it, slightly richer in its southern drawl. And as though from at my feet, he rose up, snorting with laughter, <laughs> plucking a spider from his own uniform and sucking it down home. Not yet, not yet. We has to kill this simple shit on a stick before we's gonna let him live again. The spiders that had covered me were gone. Silas Johnston. And oh, a happy fucking day to you, Blue Balls. The rats, meanwhile, were eating each other, rending flesh, swallowing down bones, reducing their number to one giant, bloated, bloody rat in mere moments before it, too, rose in human form, now bloodless and immaculate. A third soldier now stood before me, smoothing down the non-existent wrinkles on his uniform, which bore a lieutenant's bar like my own. He sniffed, nose twitching, and bowed low. Phineas Johnston, I am... Pleased to meet you, I... It was more than I could take, Catherine. I regret to say that I actually swooned on the spot, and I would doubtless have fallen flat on my face if the Johnston brothers hadn't caught me on the way down. How much time passed after that, I do not know. Doubtless the morning had come when my head began to clear, but the sky was still black, the moon casting a silvery outline over the clouds that now concealed it. He's awake. I recognized the refined, courteous voice of Phineas at once. He was the last one to have spoken to me, the first to greet me on reawakening. He cocked an eyebrow at me, shot me a sly smile. Congratulations on not being dead yet. I made as though to sit up, and Phineas helped me by an arm. Who sent you? Was it the Wraith? This one was new, his voice dark with suspicion. He stood with his back to me, a deeper shadow among the surrounding shadows. At his either side, Absalom and Silas watched me. Their faces intent, curious. Someone did, I said. I, I, I thought it must have been one of you. He promised. He said I should seek Captain Angus Johnston. I 
don't know who... I am Angus. The shadow seethed at me, though he yet gave me naught else but his back. Where is he? I blinked at him. My mouth opened and closed. I felt my heart constrict despair, settling on my soul as though it were a blanket deliberately draped over my shoulders by the owner of that voice. He's doing this to me. He's controlling my feelings, killing me from the inside. My God. My God. Phineas nodded encouragement. Speak, Lieutenant. You need only tell the truth. The the surgical tents. Cemetery Hill. Are there officers there? Are there important people present, unlike you? Will we find any Yankees of worth in convalescence? Every word was a weapon against my soul. Every syllable a barb. I thought of Captain Hainsworth. But no, he had already died on the amputation table. Still... Sir, I said, speaking the honorific to the enemy with no difficulty. He was my superior in rank, whatever his cause. Sir, I I cannot say for certain, but I do not doubt it. What followed was a long, slow, deliberate sigh. Whatever lack of doubt I might have felt in truth, the Confederate captain did not share it. What did he promise you? He turned to face me at last. But there was still nothing there. Only a shadow of pitch surrounded by darkness less complete. All I could make out were the fringes of his uniform and the thin, slippery black snakes that oozed from the cuffs of his sleeves and slithered to me as though to attack. He... he... he he promised... They were coming for me. A river of black rattlesnakes. He... he promised me family... He promised you, family. Phineas again took me by the arm, placed his free hand over my mouth. Silence. Patience. Then, to Angus. Give him a chance, elder brother. Let us see what he can do. Let us see what he will do. Angus snapped his fingers. Rather than attacking me, the rattlesnakes encircled me, rearing up, their dreadful tails aquiver with the threat of imminent death. Another brother. Phineas nodded to the serpents. Lieutenant, meet Lewis. Lewis, meet the lieutenant. The serpents, as one, opened their jaws and hissed at me. Fangs out. God, I thought, how many of these brothers are there in total? But I nodded to them, as Phineas had done. Follow, then lead, if you will. If you have anything, in truth, to lead us to. 
Give us something worthwhile, Lieutenant, and I may offer you something other than death. Somehow, I found the courage to give the matter a gentle press. Perhaps the captain will be good enough to tell the lieutenant what that is. A new name, perhaps. And he disappeared, as though into a black mist that hadn't been there before. His voice continued as though from the void. Fail, and I shall eat you myself, one bloody shred of quivering flesh at a time. The serpents slithered off, back in the direction whence I had come here, back to Cemetery Hill. A new name, I thought, scrambling to follow after them. Casper. Casper Johnston, newest in a fraternity with devils. I got to my feet, hastening after the snakes. In the hour that followed, Catherine, I thought of you. I knew that I weighed in one hand the prospect of this death against that one, and it seemed to me there remained no choice that afforded me life, unless I was to give up my family to become one with theirs. Mother and father will be pleased, I thought with some irony, now leading the river of serpents through the tall grass and back up Cemetery Hill, for I have now cast my lot with the Army of Northern Virginia. I have not given up on returning to you, Catherine. Not yet. I shall navigate this paradox, if I can, and speak to you more of it when I am home. For now, briefly, this is what happened. The fires were all out, untended. The lamps within tents mostly extinguished. None were about other than the sentries, and they knew me. The serpents remained in the grass when I returned to the open, but I felt their eyes on me, the eyes of Lewis Johnston on me, and through him, the eyes of Angus. I first entered the tent where Lieutenant Colonel Braxton Charles lay recovering from the amputation of a foot. How much morphine would Dr. Rusk have given him for only a foot? I thought it likely that he'd been given more than his share, as he was a cavalry officer and might yet return on horseback to the field of battle tomorrow. Also, he slept clean through, even when the rattlesnakes followed me in shortly after, managing by some unknown devilry or magic to remain undetected on their way into the tent. But it was not as serpents that they came to him in the end. It was then that I first saw Lewis in human form, there at the side of the bed. Tall, dark of hair, slender of build. And he took a moment to regard me with approval. I had, it seemed, done well. Only in his fangs did any semblance of the serpent remain in him as he leaned over the officer at the neck. I do not think, however, that Lewis poisoned him. I think 
though I shudder to put these words to paper, that Lewis drank from him. I saw Lieutenant Colonel Braxton Charles' eyes flutter open just once, as though in sudden realization, and then close for all time as life left his body in a slow exhalation of defeat. Then Lewis again reverted to serpent form, but this time only one, very great in size, and it was no rattler. The form he had then assumed blended in nearly to the point of disappearing with the packed brown earth of the encampment. It waited, tongue flicking in and out of its triangular head, expectant. I proceeded to the next tent. After we had visited three of them, the serpent departed, and I returned to my own tent to claim whatever hours of sleep yet remained before dawn. July 3rd, Catherine, I am sorry. Writing is difficult. Right hand is bad. Left is useless. So nothing to study the paper with. Battle, South Cemetery Hill. Yesterday, midday, little time. No rest. Was relieved of command. Put me on firing line. I think... Suspected me. They... Fired on me. My man. From behind. Denning. Hicks. Shot me. I lay dead left me there others found me back in tents now waiting it hurts no help no medicine lower back left hand right arm right knee the table Catherine They're going to cut me apart. The case, it's open. Bone saw. Long knives. Bistori. Horse hair. Three pieces. Three pieces of me. Won't make it. I'm sorry. No morphine. Nothing. Catherine. I hear there. July 4th. 1863. Dearest Catherine, goodbye. I know that he would have wanted to tell you that, 
And so I tell you on his behalf. The man you knew as your brother, Carlisle Fick, is dead. If the penmanship of this letter seems familiar to you, that is because the vessel of his body still remains. The story of his life lives in my memory as though I lived it. He died well, if it's any comfort to you. Over the coming days, I shall endeavor to forget, to banish him like the fragments of a dream that clings only until the dawn. I shall never see the sun again, and that dream shall die in the dark. Yet you remain precious to me, though I see you only as through the gray veil of a drawn curtain. Let us pretend, one final time, that I am still who once I was in truth, your loving brother, Carlisle Fick. Let us pretend and then depart. I do not think I shall ever again experience such agonies and terrors as I did at the hands of Dr. Abner Rusk and his amputation kit. Never. Not even should I be taken from this world forever and flung by God into the hottest flames of hell. Outside the tent, the battle raged on as the doctor dug the first of the mini-balls from the base of my spine with a heated knife and then turned me over. Denning and Hicks were present. It was they who held me in place as Dr. Rusk ground through my shin bone in slow, circular strokes, taking his time, listening all the while as my corporals explained to him my southern heritage, the evidence of witnesses who claimed to have seen me outside of all three tents where officers had suffered unaccountable deaths the night before. How I screamed and screamed. I hadn't even a bit to bite as the doctor set my lower leg aside and called for the cauterizing iron. They called me a coward, a traitor, an assassin, and there I lay, helpless and restrained, unable to take comfort even in my innocence. I am not the only man, Catherine, to have fled from the first wave of battle when his commander is shot while standing beside him. It is not my fault I was born in South Carolina. I have neither acted nor behaved any differently than might any man when confronted with such impossibilities as I was in that lonely, dreadful night. What I beheld All that I heard and witnessed with my own eyes is beyond the scope or understanding given to the human experience. Who can say what they might have done in my stead? And I did not murder any of those officers. That was Lewis. I was his hostage. I was powerless and did only as they told me. I... I am not so powerless now, nor will I ever be again. 
But there is a threshold of pain, as I learned on the table when they cut the sleeve from my arm and readied themselves to continue the butchery. It was a threshold I passed while the doctor sawed through the ligaments that anchored my arm to my shoulder, and my vision went black to the sound of their low laughter. Why they permitted me to live, I'll never know. I certainly did not expect it. But when I again awoke, deep into the night of July 2nd or the earliest hour of July 3rd, there was considerably less of me than there had been when the day had started. I was alone in the tent. I heard no sentry outside of it. Anyone could have come inside and killed me. I fervently wished someone would do so. And soon, eventually, someone did. That someone, it should be no surprise, was Angus. I'd thought perhaps if any of the fiends were to return to me, it should be the one I had met first. The one they called the Wraith but I have not seen him since that first encounter. Perhaps he is done with me. Angus came for me first as a foul breath of wind swirling about the bed. I could not see him, but the reek was familiar, a burning tinged with blood. He came to himself only when the others followed in after, serpents and rats, spiders, and a fluttering bat that hung under the low-hanging oil lamp. I did not see his face, but he whispered to me, I'm going to kill you now. Do you object? No, I managed, for I remained yet in much torment of body and spirit. Please, sir, and be done with it. You have done much to earn that death, and I do not trust you yet. Still, you accomplished more in that one evening than I would have expected of you over many days. Tell me, you poor, broken wretch. This last word he uttered with neither kindness nor sympathy. After you have died, are you willing to go further? For I can bring you back, you know. What would you do, you miserable, misbegotten man, to the enemies who betrayed you, to the doctor who tormented you? For I can see all three of them in your mind. Your heart is a black hole of hate. You torment me as well, I said, summoning some of that anger and directing it squarely at him, though I could not see him. I have done nothing against you, sir. Kill me now, or leave me. Tell me, would you have that hatred, that darkest desire of your heart, satisfied? Certainly, I thought. But how, and at what cost? I know the way. The price is only eternity. 
Only your soul. And that is worthless now. Trust me, you won't even miss it. They gathered about me, tails rattling, teeth chittering, pinchers clicking audibly in the gloom. The human eyes of the bat under the lantern open, wide and blue, and stared at me, awaiting my decision. I nodded and instantly felt the teeth of Angus upon me, though I had yet to see his face. There is not much more to tell, sweet Catherine, and of that, most is not fit for you to hear. But that was the night of my first death, and I did not sleep long. I woke to the new torment of my limbs regrowing from the ragged stumps of torn flesh and sawn bone. My eyes fluttered open to a new kind of sight that I cannot describe. Not yet, anyway. It will take some getting used to, I think. And I awoke to new orders. The famed doctor, Abner Rusk, and my former companions in war, Denning and Hicks. I have decided in this second life of mine that I should not limit myself to mere success, Catherine. I should excel. But I did kill them. In the deepest dark of early morning, I stalked the tents and the battle lines of Cemetery Hill until I found them. And not only the corporals and the surgeon. Every last member of my company, once a hundred strong, I hunted in the sleepy gloom of a summer morning in Gettysburg before the dawn. And I killed them all. I have died, Catherine, but I am not dead. I have been broken, but am now reborn. I am chaos. I am mayhem. I am murder, and I will not be denied. I am Casper, and I regret nothing. We have left the encampment at Gettysburg. I have heard that the fighting there has ended, though it had not at the hour of my departure. Such things do not matter now. These new brothers of mine, the Johnstons, they do not belong to the Confederate cause, after all. They assumed that appearance for my sake. It was something that, at the time they deemed I could understand. Now they have what they want, at least for now. And we are moving on. And you, Catherine, you have some time, for we must journey far yet before they turn their attention to the south. There is more family to meet still, 
or so I am told. I must be brought before them, and that, I hope, will work much to your advantage. If there is any humanity left in me, sister, I no longer feel it. All of it there ever was resided in truth only in you, and you can have it. They will come for you. I will come for you. You do not want to be at Cape Matador when the Johnstons come calling. Flee. Save mother and father if you care enough to try, but depart on your own if you must. You are both clever and willful, little sister. I have faith you will find your way, as I have. You shall never hear from me again. It's for the best. When you are again safe, forget me. But at Wiles, remember Carlisle, if you would. Casper Johnston That was it. End of correspondence, and the end of Carlisle Fick. Good riddance, if you ask me. Wow, but he was depressing as fuck. I much preferred Casper, as I had known him. I sat back in the chair, let out a sigh. So... This place was not only one of the safe houses occupied by the Johnstons, but it had also been Casper's human home. Not this building in particular, maybe, but the town. I wondered where the actual thick house had stood, whether it was a simple home like mine had been, or a four-reel plantation back before the start of the war. They were his family, Summer. His real one. What had I wanted from all of this? What had I expected? Had I thought, somehow, to hear his voice in my mind again, just like old times? The good old days? There were no good old days. He's gone, Summer. Let him go. I stared up at the ceiling. I wiped my eyes, supremely annoyed at myself. Oh, this was fucking rich. I'm sitting alone in the basement of the safe house at Cape Matador, and I'm fucking crying. For no one. Where are you, Casper? I suppose, in the end, I don't actually know that he's dead. I've made that mistake before. He could be alive. Somewhere. Speak to me, Casper, as you. Please, I'm all alone here. And this, I thought with an utterly ridiculous flash of optimism, would be his cue to whisper something to me from afar. That's how it had always been. Whenever Summer finally hit rock bottom, whenever Hope had abandoned her completely and left her for dead, that was when Casper would show up. Moments like this, like right now. Instead, nothing. 
footsteps from upstairs. The turning of locks. The checking of doors and windows. A knock at the porthole. Summer? What? No answer. (sighs) Fucking hell. I went to the ladder, scaling it silently so she would not know exactly when I had come and gone. Made the porthole safe for her and returned to my chair. I let time pass. (sighs) Go ahead. Another click. The creak of wood drawn back. The flashlight app from a cell phone, pointing right at me. I stared at it, blinking, using my hand for a visor. God damn, if I'd told Faye not to do that once, I've told her a thousand times. Summer, you okay? And that, typically, would have been my cue to say something sarcastic and biting and oh so witty to deflect her. No, I said instead, letting the tears fall. Guess not. I will be. Just not tonight. Reasons. Wanna talk about it? She was only a shadow. Only... Somebody please kill me now. A human being. Not really, no. Tell me a story then? I could hear the smile behind those words. When we left off, you recruited... Cheryl. Girl's memory was like a sieve. She still had to make her first kill, though, and we only had a couple of hours. Close call. Hi, Adventure. Please? How much of this did she even believe? Didn't seem to matter to her. Anyway... The truth is often difficult to believe. And it was her birthday, after all. Oh, fine. I waved her over, sniffling back the last of my personal drama. Come on, then. Pull up a chair. And for Christ's sake, turn off the- Goddamn phone! She extinguished it. And came to me in the dark. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. 
Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.